It's October of 1984, and you, Buck Crenshaw, have been on the job for six months as the CEO of Typhon, and your hand-picked head of animation is calling you from a control room with shouting animators and the director about that he wants to make cuts directly to a feature film called The Black Label by himself over the head of everyone else. He is not an animator, he is not an editor, he is not even a director. And he wants to put uh, scissors to film and make cuts. And he specifically wants to cut the major defining sequences of the film. What do you do? Do you let him make the cuts? Do you make him back down? What would you do? Welcome back to Monopsony Podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Johnson, and today I'll be taking on a case study. What is a case study, you might add? Well, a case study is where a person is given all the information that another individual might have at a given time and asked to understand what decision they might make in their place. So today we'll be talking about a fictional character, though he has a real uh, counterpart named Buck Crenshaw, and his decision regarding the cuts made to a movie called The Black Label. Again, I've changed the names and made different names and funny points in here to make sure you don't really understand what company is at stake because that can influence your decision-making processes. But I hope you enjoy the story we're about to go through, and I hope you can take the time to think about what decisions you might have made in Buck Crenshaw's place, and more importantly, why you would make that decision. You can email responses to me at monopsonypodcast at gmail.com or tweeted us at one buyer podcast at on Twitter. I used today's beverages as inspiration for this particular podcast. The first beverage I had, I had two of them actually, was a, somehow a product of Belgium that I found here in Malaysia, which I thought was called Typhoon until I read it closer, and it's called Typhon. Uh, it doesn't make a ton of sense. It has a Welsh dragon on it, but it is a beer, and so we have it. Uh, I decided to name the name of the company we'll be discussing on the podcast today after this particular beverage in case. Uh, the second one was something I also found here in Malaysia called the Black Label. Uh, the Black Label is a super strong premium beer, which I'll be drinking throughout the recording here. And I chose to name the film that is, you know, we're having as a counterpart for the case study after the Black Label. Uh, please enjoy the story as I imbibe here, and I hope you are having a beverage too to make sure this is a wonderful experience. And on with the story. I want to go through a bit of a playbill here so you can understand the actors and players in this little drama. The new CEO is named Buck Crenshaw. He's the one making the decision. The head of animation he chose, his name is Wilbur Flanagan. Wilbur is the one who wants to make cuts to the film. The previous head of animation was a man named Ken Abernathy. Ken is the son-in-law of Oliver Spadsky, founder of the company. He's very, very important to the previous generations and history of the company. Oliver's nephew, Bob Spadsky, is also still with the company on the board of directors. We also have three generations of animators that you should understand here. There's the old animators, who have been animating everything since 1937. The second generation animators, who have been working under the old, gener old generation. And they have a leader named Buster Conroy. And finally, we have the animators of Generation 3. 
and they are directly out of college. The story of Typhon Animation begins as far back as 1928 when they released their first cartoon. They have a semi-mythical founder, Oliver Spadsky, and he passed away in 1966. He was responsible for the original cartoons as well as basically every cartoon feature-length film from 1937 through 1959. Um, Typhon had an amazing, amazing career, uh, run of feature films, again beginning in 1937, and they had great success on uh, children and family films in the market with simple plots and songs and music. However, there has been a change in recent years. Beginning in the early 1970s, this is after the passing of uh, the founder, the films stopped being runaway hits. They were still hits. They still made money. They were just making less money. Now, this was so much so that Bob Spatsky, that's nephew of the founder, he actually resigned from the board in 1977 over disagreements with corporate decisions. He later claimed, and this is a quote, I just felt creatively the company was not going anywhere interesting. It was stifling. And after Bob's departure in 1977, there were several uh, mediocre releases to come out of Typhon Animation. TV Guide called their 1977 release is that it represents a bright spot in, in Typhon's post-golden era. Uh, they noted that it's beautifully animated that shows that Typhon still knew a lot about making quality children's fare, even as their track record was weakening. The follow-up 1981 release did not improve upon that track record. It gained just one half of the same revenue as the 1977 release did. It did $62.7 million on a budget of $12 million. Now, this might sound like a lot, but... Previously, since like 1977, on a budget of about $7 million, they garnered about $125 million. And this was a low-performing uh, feature for Typhon Animation. So previous had done much, much better, and this was a low point. So that's the background. Let's get into the internals of what's going on at Typhon. At Typhon, the first thing to understand is we're coming up on 1985, was that there was an animator strike in 1981 animators felt that their uh, contributions were not being reflected in their pay and in their benefits. Um, it was tradition for Typhon animators to actually not get paid very much, as was part of the founder's credo to use them and work them as much as he could. And now that they were unionized, they were just fighting back and making sure that they were paid appropriately to the value of their creative works. However, with the strike came a stoppage of work in 1981 for approximately four months. This can cause all kinds of nightmares and headaches for the production schedule of feature-length films. Second, we have three distinct cohorts of animators within Typhon Animation. There's the old animators. We're so old! They've been animating for feature films since approximately 1937 and have worked on every feature film since that time. They know their stuff, they have great skills, they understand what it makes to make, to make a quality product, but they're committed to their ways and they're set in their processes. We also have a second generation. The second generation came to work for Typhon because of the success of the first generation. And they look and have been looking for a number of years to find a way to show that they have skills and that they can make a place for themselves, not in the shadow of generation one. 
The third generation is directly out of university. They're young, they're eager, they have new skills, and they're not afraid to take daring risks. The hitch in this plan is that the leader of Generation 2, a Mr. Buster Conroy, in 1979 took 11 seasoned animators of Generation 2 and started his own studio that was committed to quality and innovation and had a background that looked and sounded a lot like Typhon. They learned the skills and honed them for many years and had taken them and were moving on to do their own work which left the current roster of animators within Typhon to be mostly Generation 3, with some elements of Generation 1 trying to lead the way. But this is a lot like an old man trying to teach young people how to use a computer. Well, you click it, and then you let these things work out. What'd you say there, Sonny? This is a lot of what happens here. We have old animators who know the old ways to do things and young animators who know the new ways to do things. And we have a clash of cultures going on within Typhon Animation. Yet animation studios like Typhon do not exist in a vacuum. They exist in the marketplace and have to compete with other animation studios out there and other products that compete for the attention of their target market, whether these be feature length films or small screen cartoons on Saturday mornings. Typhon went through a great deal of length to try to understand the market, and so we'll give some background context as to what was happening between 1977 and 1985. The first thing to understand is that uh, a lot of success was actually being had by small screen adaptations to large screen feature length films. So uh, things like He-Man, and other cartoons at the time were in fact making large screen debuts. And those films were being successful as well as were their cartoons that came in with a built-in audience from the small screen. You would also find that these particular, uh, particular cartoons were more violent or had a more dark tinge to them as children were becoming more adept at understanding darker themes as opposed to originally very pure-hearted themes that were the signature of Typhon animation. You also have an interesting comp competitive threat coming in out of international markets, specifically from Japan and Korea. Uh, they produce on much smaller budgets and with considerably different, darker, and wilder themes, which would be the revolution of, say, uh, Japanese animation or even Korean animation studios here. While Typhon would release no films between 1982 and 1985, uh, Japanese and Korean releases averaged uh, seven to eight feature films per year. Um, and so that's a production volume uh, play that is happening within the market for feature-length animations. There were other changes, not only corporate, that were affecting the market for animations. This includes things like your changing in the audience and changing in the distribution models. The first thing to understand, and, and you know, uh, Typhon uh, executives actually understood this pretty well. I'm, I'm misquoting one here a little, but they said, uh, teens won't see our films if we paid them, and they are the ones with disposable income. So it's clear that the money side of feature-length animation films relies on slightly older audiences because children have to convince their parents, and that's a second-step process, and there's a number of other variables that go into getting children to go see a film. That relies on, on certain amounts of money they have and how much they can afford and how much they're willing to go off into the films. 
However, older audiences have a little more access to disposable income and can choose to, disp to spend that accordingly on feature-length animations. The other changes that are coming are things like home markets are becoming more and more relevant in the early 1980s, specifically with the release of Betamax and VHS. After sales of films was becoming an important long-term revenue stream for any release, as was the re-release of classic films. So not only does the film have to debut well and get people to go to the film, but they also have to be able to sell the film for rewatching after on a multiple variety of formats. Uh, and so you can also detect that this is something that's being reflected in the animations for television that are becoming slightly more violent and often scary. Again, we mentioned He-Man, but also think G.I. Joe. These are successful with children, but involve more violence, more darker themes. Uh, and there was a certain sense that, you know, uh, feature-length animations can push scarier boundaries across cinema. Uh, think about face-melting scenes that happen in Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Poltergeist, Alien, all of those were coming out in this particular era and were seen by animators of, uh, animators of uh, Typhon. Added to this, the threats that were coming were real. First, the costs of animation were actually going up and up and up. Not only were the animators themselves more expensive after the strike, but the cost of production materials was going up, the cost of investments in technology was going up, the cost of production in general for all animation was going up. And the investments in the technology necessary to keep up with production were in fact going up. So you weren't able to recoup the investments you made, making just generally less money at the same slow pace you were before. Compounded to this, the second generation of animators actually managed to release in 1982 their first feature-length film. Uh, which is a moderately successful dark science fiction cartoon that performed admirably at the box office, especially for children over nine and between fifteen, between nine and fifteen. So you can see that their, their competitors for Typhon were actually going after the same market and were doing it earlier and were doing it for cheaper. This is a recipe for stagnation and a recipe for a problem with your studio. In the midst of this, Bob Abernathy, who was the original head of, of animation features at Typhon, had a plan. He was noticing these changes. He was noticing them early. And his plan was something called the Black Label. The Black Label was to be a feature-length film that would rally the entire market back to have a new golden age of Typhon animation. It was to be a touchstone for a new generation of animators and a new generation of, of the audience. And part of this was the new story. So the story was acquired as part of a uh, – it was a pretty beloved five-part medieval fantasy novel series. They acquired the rights in 1971, and they had pre-production starting on the Black Label in 1973. That's a full 12 years before it was actually released in 1985. So it was 12 years of pre-production and then production to get this out the door. Typhon used the materials and ownership of the materials to attract young animator talent as well as sell a return to their heyday of 30 years prior. Uh, the Generation 3 was recruited from their universities and from their colleges by the materials that saying they were going to work on the black label, which was going to be a new standard in animation and set a new precedent for uh, Typhon animation. So it took 10 years, or maybe 11 more likely, to actually create the, bl the black label. Uh, what's important to think here is that 
in 10 years' time, a lot changes. You lose animators, you gain animators, some people get discouraged. You have a lot of people. What would you say if your project wasn't going to be completed and was never going to see the light of day for 10 years? How frustrated would you, as the creators, might be during the production process as it gets going through back and forth and back and forth and back and forth on what this should be, as well as as it gets near to the finish line and you as the animators, and I want to get, you know, remember the question here, is that this film was going to be cut by a novice as the animators and the directors objected in 1985. There's a lot of pent-up anger in, he, in this particular project due to the length of time and the money spent on its production. So let's get into that production here. The first thing to understand is that there were actually uh, – you had to do various incarnations before you could even animate the feature film. So prior to the animation, there were 17, 18 scripts from the five-book series that was to be condensed into a vaguely two-hour dark opus. Uh, it was going to have witches, an army of the undead, and a deep, dark villain who was going to be the new face of evil. Uh, and though, so there were actually three sets of directors. There was one director who took it and when they made the purchase and wrote the original pitches to make this a project. There was a second director who was involved in pre-production, and there was a third uh, dual set of directors who actually came on in about 1982 to try to take the film to its conclusion and release in 1985. That's a lot of leadership changes, and so there's a lot of rewrites and a lot of back and forth on how long this film actually took to create from design principles to animation to the specs of which it was going to be designed on. There were actually snafus in terms of production because they were actually writing and animating on the wrong size of materials for a certain point and had to go back and lose months of work. There was a lot of problems with production of the black label. Now, one of the process elements here that's very interesting to me and also part of the cost is that, that originally the film was hand-colored cell by cell. And this is something like, I don't know, 28 uh, you know, cells per second, of which they are in fact, you know, drawing each wall, each cell, and coloring them by hand. And this is a beautiful process that produces beautiful results. It's also painstakingly slow. It's hard to do edits. It's hard to make changes. Everything has to be done from scratch again, and that makes the costs spiral. Now, one of the things that the black label was known for was actually the, the uh, creation of a new process, which was called, conveniently enough, the ATP process, animation photo transfer process which was developed uh, for the production of the black label. It eventually eliminated the need for inking and decreased production times. So this is part of the investment in the process of part of the spiraling cost to make the costs go down. Uh, the black label is also filmed in 77 millimeters, something called Super Technorama, and it had a high-def soundtrack uh, by an orchestral, uh, you know, orchestral orchestra, uh, by the one and only Elmer Bernstein, who is an absolute god amongst uh, you know cinema feature film music back, music tracks. So they get all the best working on this. They have it in high def. They have it in large screen format. They're going to have beautiful drawings, and they're going to have great music. Did I mention the Undead Army sequence? So the Undead Army sequence was supposed to be the piece de resistance of this dark opus. It included things like face melting, walking skeletons, very bloody death, axes to the face, etc. And there were even plans and a whole bunch of money spent on a potential holographic sequence. 
for the undead army that would bring them to life. This would mean a holograph seeming projecting the undead who would walk out of the mists and out of their, you know, uh, cauldrons, shall we say, and come into the theater to scare the audiences. At the time, the Black Label became had a budget of almost forty million, uh, and this is opposed to their general budgets of thirteen to seventeen million for previous Typhon films. It was the most expensive animated production of its time. There were constant fights about the length of the film. So originally slated for approximately 120 minutes, it was cut down to about 110 minutes, and that was where it was until, the, uh, until October of 1984, about 110 minutes or so. Uh, in screen tests in 1984 as well, children, literally, and this is from uh, direct sources here, they huddled in their mother's laps. Mothers and children walked out. Audible wails of terror could be heard from the audience uh, from this uh, Typhon animation feature-length film. So it's pretty clear to understand that the, the black label was, to its credit, actually very scary, and that was his intention. It was meant to be that way, and it came out that way. Now, moving on to more of a corporate side here to understand uh, you know, Buck's perspective on this. In its slow progress, uh, because of this, you know, Typhon actually in 1980 and 83 or so became targets of corporate raiders who wanted to buy and break up and sell off its holdings that included things like Typhon Animation. Um, and this became – was halted actually with the return of Bob Spatsky uh, with some other investors that was part of a corporate shakeup that was happening because of the declining revenues that we discussed from other animations in the past. And part of this corporate shakeup was actually the removal of Bob Abernathy. Now, Bob Abernathy is the one who had the plan for the Black Label to begin with, and the introduction of his replacement, Wilbur Flanagan, and his boss, Buck Crenshaw. That's why these two come in in 1984, because there's new corporate leadership atop this already pre-production of and release of the Black Label. So I want to bring back to the case study itself. You are, you are Buck Crenshaw. Uh, you've been on the job for six months. Your hand-picked head of animation, who knows nothing about animation, is calling you from a control room with shouting animators, and he's saying, I need to make cuts to the black label. I need to make cuts to the signature section, the walking undead. He's not an editor. He doesn't know anything about it. But he wants to make those cuts. He needs to get those cuts to make it down to under 90 minutes so that it can actually be for children. Or he says it's going to be a sprawling mess. It's already been pushed back in release, from original release in 1984 to July of 1985. You're on the phone with Wilbur. What do you say? Do you tell him to make the cuts, or do you tell him to listen to his animators, listen to his directors? You're the CEO. What is the decision right now? So that's the case of the Black Label and Typhon Animation. I hope you enjoyed the quick story and can recognize some of the business case elements that would have in there. I really like to hear your thoughts and specifically what you do as Ken and why. Um, you know, it's important that we make we can try to analyze decisions making made by leadership and as, as to market changes and everything else. I know I have opinions about what could have been done or what was done at the time. Make sure you only use the information provided in the podcast and don't go to external sources that kind of corrupts any decisions you might want to make. We want to make sure that anybody trying to make a decision on this actually uses only the information that was available at the time and doesn't bring in any future events to make decisions based on things that we didn't know would happen. 
Uh, I'd appreciate any feedback on the scenario. I will be presenting my, uh, feed, my creation and my thoughts in the next podcast, episode two, on the case of the Black Label. You can email me your questions at monopsonypodcast at gmail.com or tweet at me, uh, one buyer podcast on Twitter. You can also become a patron if you're interested, becoming a patron of the show, uh, Monopsony Podcast at Patreon. Thank you for joining us today, and we look forward, and I look forward to hearing your thoughts on the case of the Black Label.